my dear Bagginses and Boffins, Tukes and Brandybucks, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Bracegirdles, and Proudfoots. Proud feet. Welcome to my brother, my captain, my podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy, Nigh 20 Years Hence. Are you frightened? Yes. Not nearly frightened enough. I know what hunts you. I'm Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is At the Inn of the Prancing Pony, where we meet a mysterious ranger from the north as the Nazgul close in on their quarry. This is our sixth episode on 2001's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. And I just want to use this uh, moment at the top to reiterate that we have, uh, or I have posted Patreon stretch goals over at my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb. Uh, to unlock bonus episodes on uh, book-only scenes and extended edition scenes in The Fellowship of the Ring, as well as the rest of the trilogy. If you go to my uh, Patreon site, you can get all the details on there. Um, but I, pl- I encourage you to sign up because um, you'll get you know bonus cat content on top <laughs> of everything else. But um, I think Emily and I have a lot to dish on with the book-only chapters, as well as the extended edition scenes, and we would love to bring that to you. Hell yes. Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin have just arrived at Bree and headed for the sign of the Prancing Pony in hopes of rendezvousing with Gandalf. The hobbits head to the human-sized reception desk where they meet Barliman Butterbur, the proprietor of the inn. He has plenty of hobbit-sized rooms available for them, but they are more concerned with finding Gandalf. Gandalf, Barliman questions. Oh right, the unmistakable wizard with a long hat and beard that cannot be confused for anyone else. (laughs) Well, Barleyman hasn't seen him in six months. With no immediate options, the hobbits take up room and board with Barleyman under Frodo's fake name of Underhill, remembering that the only clues the enemy has about the possessor of the ring is the name Baggins. While the main parlor of the inn is filled with men feasting and drinking, danger and uncertainty is starting to sink in for the hobbits. Well, at least for Frodo and Sam. Merry and Pippin have discovered that ale comes in pints. Before I get too far, I do want to note that the most important shot in all of the films is right here. A shot of a bodega cat hanging out at the bar. (laughs) Sam takes note of a strange man, all in black, hiding in the shadows, watching Frodo intently. Frodo asks Barleyman about this stranger. That man in the corner. Who is he? He's one of them rangers. He 
dangerous folk they are, wandering in the wilds. What his right name is, I've never heard, but round here, he's known as Strider. Strider, Frodo ponders, as if it were a half-remembered name from a long-forgotten lineage. Without thought, Frodo begins fondling the ring, turning it over in his hand. Baggins, it whispers to him. Baggins. Baggins! That last was not from the ring, but from Pippin, who is drunkenly blowing Mr. Underhill's cover over at the bar. Frodo makes his way towards his second cousin, but as he yanks on Pippin's arm, he falls backwards with the ring launching straight into the air and falling onto Frodo's finger. And like that, he's gone. Frodo disappears to the shock of Pippin and all the Brelanders. The film immediately cuts to the Nazgul on the road who seem to now instantly know where to find the ring bearer. Frodo finds himself in the twilight world, the world of wraiths. The people around him are blurred, inaudible, moving in slow motion, but something else gives Frodo pause. It's the eye of Sauron, bathing Frodo in flames. There is no life in the void it warns, before Frodo hurriedly takes off the ring, reappearing safely underneath a table. Well, maybe not so safe, as a road-worn hand snatches him off screen. You draw far too much attention to yourself, Mr. Underhill, the ranger from the north warns. He marches Frodo back to the hobbit's room, wherein we get our first good look at the handsome face of Viggo Mortensen, playing the role of Strider, aka Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Don't worry, we'll get there. Strider seems to know a great deal about Frodo, and maybe more importantly, that which hunts him. Samwise the Brave, along with Merry and Pip, barge in at this moment, ready to save Frodo from, his un- from this unknown wanderer. Strider sheaths his sword and lets the hobbits know they cannot linger here. They are coming. We return to the Nazgul storming their way into Bree and breaking into the Prancing Pony. They enter the hobbits' room, and the camera cuts to Sam and com- company comfortably asleep in their beds. The four Nazgul each settle up next to a hobbit bed and drive their swords into them quickly and repeatedly. But they were all of them deceived, for another bedroom was booked. (laughs) Aragorn had hidden the hobbits away in his room, and the Nazgul discover all that carnage they wrecked was against upholstery. Their disappointed shrieks wake up the remaining hobbits across the way as Aragorn lets them know these riders were once men, great kings of men, who had been betrayed and enthralled by Sauron with nine rings of power. And most of all, they will never, ever stop hunting Frodo. Strider takes charge of the company from here, setting out from Bree early the next morning. He's taking the hobbits to Rivendale, an idea that delights Sam. But the road is no longer safe, so into the wild they go. Meals are a little harder to come by out here, and Aragorn doesn't quite have the same eating schedule as the hobbits. We'll end the recap here and play you out with the very serious discussion that ensued. (laughs) Gentlemen, we do not stop till nightfall. What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? Don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about elevensies? Luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. He knows about them, doesn't he? I wouldn't count on it. So we begin in Brie. Um, and we're going to start, I think, as we're going to start quite a few of our <laughs> episodes with, with a quick linguistic note, uh, just a hat tip. So old Johnny talks here. Um, so Brie in uh, Brythonic, which is a Celtic language, uh, means hill. Um, and 
this is an important note for two reasons. The first is that uh, Tolkien was a major proponent of uh, the argument that like Britonic and Celtic languages uh, were a far more important like precursor to English than is typically accepted. Usually, like the 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 standard take on English is that it's a Germanic language with strong French and Latin influences. The closer you are to mainland Britain, um, but Tolkien really really goes hard as in his career as a linguist on this idea that. Um, in terms of like form and syntax, uh, the Celtic languages are really significant for shaping uh, English. So he obviously puts a lot of emphasis on Celtic words where he can, and and importantly, he tends to prefer them um, over um, French words. Um, so there are a lot of words in English, um, words and names in English that come directly from French, but Tolkien, where he could... Um, abjured that and chose Celtic options instead. Um, and um, I'll point out as we carry on a couple instances where this is like really obvious and, and clunky. Um, but anyways, nonetheless, Brie, uh, Hill, and Brythonic, and uh, that is just entirely down to Tolkien loving Celtic languages. Um, a, a slight side note on this, um, and we will come back to this in a later episode when we deal more intensively with the languages of the legendarium, um, is that um, in-universe, Brie probably isn't called Brie. Um, Tolkien treated the material of Lord of the Rings as if it was in translation, so he was the only person who spoke, you know, Sindarin or Quenya, um, and was therefore translating it from the original language to English, um, and in so doing, needed to find um, equivalent terms for the ones that he came across and a way of conveying their relationship to the common tongue, the, the primary, lang primary language spoken in Lord of the Rings. So in universe, <laughs> Brie is probably a different uh, word that relates to the common tongue of Middle-earth, but is a slightly older variant in the same way that um, Brie, meaning hill, is a slightly older variant of uh, English, modern English uh, words. Um, and this is um, part of a, a longer kind of thing that Tolkien has going. Um, and at some point, maybe I might talk a little bit about his take on Beowulf and the translation of Beowulf, because that's really, really central to how he writes and talks about <laughs> <laughs> uh, language and fiction more generally, but uh, we are not doing uh, Beowulf just now. We are doing Brie, uh, so I will hear pause on the linguist chat. No, that's actually really great. I had never uh, realized that the story is presented as a translation, and we've talked a lot about how um, you know the Lord of the Rings is a story about stories, about how much of it is relayed to us as people telling each other the stories of their past or how they got to a certain point, and I feel like the fact that the story is a translation almost of like the story being, you know, written by the elves or something like that, or the hobbits, what have you, um, just as like a meta layer to that level. And I hate using the word meta <laughs> just in general, and especially now after Facebook's uh, rebranding. But um, I do like how that's just another layer about how this is a story about stories. Yeah. And it also, I think like, uh, it takes a little bit of like culpability or responsibility away from Tolkien because he gets to be like, oh, well, you know, I didn't really write this. It was the Hobbits who are definitely real. And he gets to throw up his hands and be like, if it sounds stupid, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I pull that move all the time. So I definitely get it. <laughs> uh, to uh, give us a little bit of geography here, uh, Bree is just one village in Breeland, which is in, you know, 
the region Ariador. Um, it is east of the Shire. You can follow the Great East Road to uh, connect the two locations. And it's specifically between the Midgewater Marsh and the Barrow Downs. Uh, the Barrow Downs on its like kind of west, southwest side, and then the Midgewater Marshes to its east. Um, these are locations we do not see in the films. Really, we get an extended edition scene in Midgewater Marsh, but it's not really focused. The location itself is not very much focused on. Uh, but, you know, that is something you can unlock with the bonus episodes and the Patreon stretch goal we talked about earlier. The other villages of Breland include Archer, Staddle, and Combe. Combe? Um, Combe? I don't know how to say that. Uh, C-O-M-B-E. Um, and then, uh, what's it called? I have Green here, but I... <laughs> Uh, I have Greeny here, but I think it's supposed to be uh, the Green Road runs north and south. The Greenway, the Greenway, yeah. The Greenway uh, runs north and south to Dunland and Isengard to uh, the south of Bree. Um, and this was the road that originally connected Gondor and Arnor, which are basically the northern and southern kingdoms of the men of Numenor. Gondor, I don't know what you call the whole thing. Um, but we're going to get into that fully in the next episode. So Emily can teach me my facts about Gondor and Arnor. Brace yourselves. <laughs> I think, uh, one of the more interesting things about Bree is that it's one of the few places where hobbits and men coexist. It's the furthest, uh, the furthest West that men had settled after the collapse of the Northern kingdom. And we see, uh, the intermingling of cultures here where, you know, men smoke hobbit pipe weed. They refer to South Farthing. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that there aren't many locations we see, at least in the films, uh, where, uh, various races of people kind of interact and intersect and live side by side. Bree stands out specifically as one of those locations. And uh, one thing that uh, we'll get to more in our Tolkien Tolkien book section is that the land of Bree, and, as well as, you know, the Shire, are kind of protected by the Rangers of the North, of which Strider is one. Um, and they kind of, you know, make sure that the people of Bree and the Shire can go about their daily lives without much worry of what evils may lay to the North or elsewise um, surrounding Breeland. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that um it's just a slight change um from the books, but I think it's actually quite like an interesting one and and you know sort of visually an effective one. Um they really really don't play up the extent to which the hobbits are living alongside men here um, as they do in the books. Um in the books there's a kind of not extended but there's a small discussion about how the hobbits who live in Bree are all like weirdos and um all of the the shire folk hobbits are like, "Oh god, we could never be them because they're all strange for hanging around." With the big folk um, and the big folk slash the men um, all look at the Shire Hobbits as if they are basically the Loch Ness Monster. Um, you couldn't really, I think, portray that in the film in a way that didn't seem slightly uh, unhinged. Um, but <laughs> it is just like this this sort of compounding of like the isolationism of the Shire and how like out of place the Hobbits are the minute they step outside of it. Yes, I think that's very much the effect they're going for. And uh, I want to talk about the Inn of the Prancing Pony for a little bit. Um, I'm no fantasy expert, really, but in, you know, the few fantasy things I have dabbled in, um, the concept of inns is very important, whether it's this or A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, or RPG games, whether, you know, tabletop or video game like Final Fantasy and The Witcher. 
Inns tend to be locations on the road, so they're often associated with these grand journeys, places where uh, people stop for rest and for food. But it's also in these kind of worlds where, com- you know, where communication is limited because they don't have email and cell phones. Um, communication is really limited to the written and spoken word. So inns become key nexuses or nexi of information um, and a key uh conduit for information transfer, something we'll talk about with Barlam and Butterbur here in a minute. Often in these stories, characters will often ask for information or news out of the East on top of asking for, you know, food and sustenance, um, you know, to restore your HP and MP. (laughs) And whether by chance or choice, plot often spins out from information or going ons at the ends. Um, You know, here we're going to see this is where we meet Strider and he kind of takes us on our next leg of the adventure. Um, Going back to A Game of Thrones, um, the real rising action in that first book, that first uh, season really takes off when Catelyn uh, Stark and Tyrion Lannister just so happen to uh, cross paths at the same inn and Catelyn decides to uh, take him captive. So inns are a very important part of fantasy storytelling um, because of its, you know, because it emphasizes where uh, information and communication can occur. Yeah, and and I feel kind of compelled, even though I'm not a medievalist by any stretch of the mind, um, to just mention that, like the at least in England, um, in and tavern culture is not really as like rough and ready, or was not as rough and ready as it's portrayed in fantasy. Um, and one of the the sort of key reasons for this is that traveling in in the sort of pre-bourgeois, not that Britain ever had a bourgeois revolution, but in the sort of pre-bourgeois, pre-modern era was uh, an expensive thing to do and was not something that was done lately, particularly if you were, if your work and your, um, your home was tethered to the land in, in the way that is so often done in feudalism. So, so typically, um, inns would have historically been of a slightly wealthier clientele, um, and, Actually, it's not so strange to think that, a, a well, you know, maybe not a king necessarily, but a dethroned king uh, might be hanging out in an inn. Um, it's actually the the hobbits and, uh, you know, the the guys with the bodega cats. And the, I think there's a ferret in one of these shots. You know, those guys <laughs> yes. are the guys who are like definitely meant to be out of place in this. Um, and obviously, I, I, like, like you say, it's it's an important um, fictional element here for, for having communication in a world that was largely closed off communication-wise. Um, but it is kind of just a fun little tidbit, um, you know, uh, annoying, pedantic, not critique, but thing to note that, you know, ends of your uh, were definitely a uh, rich folk thing. Ah, I did not know that. I'm glad you're here to uh, tell me these things. Um, I'm not trying to do a Han Solo impersonation there, but that's (laughs) (laughs) kind of how it came out. Um, And uh, we'll save this for, you know, maybe 50 episodes down the road, but the Hobbit movies do return here. Um, I think specifically the opening of The Desolation of Smog. Um, We see the meeting of uh, Thor and Oakenshield and Gandalf the Grey uh, meeting at the end of The Prancing Pony. Um, Reading up on this a little bit, um, whether this meeting was by chance or choice is a little... Contested, I think the film takes it's more of a choice um, that Gandalf found Thorin there, um, whereas it might be more of a chance meeting as told by the Hobbit stories. Um, We'll unpack that all maybe when we get there, um, unless Emily feels the need to correct me here now. I will do my best to not acknowledge the Hobbit films ever. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, in in those movies, um, the proprietor of the inn is supposed to be the father of Barlam and Butterbur, who we'll talk about next. 
Um, he's not, he doesn't really have a huge presence in uh, these movies. He's mostly just there to kind of provide a little exposition on Strider, um, tells us we haven't seen Gandalf in a little while, um, but he doesn't really have much more impact. Uh, but in the books, um, you know, he does, he does have, I'd say, more of a presence. Um, he's a bit more scatterbrained. And we find out that, you know, Gandalf had left him a message to give to Frodo or to give to Mr. Underhill, something like that. Um, but that part is probably rightfully scrapped for this part of the story because um, kind of the confusion and a little bit of slapstick, I wouldn't, you know, that kind of comes with Parliament in the books would kind of be ill-suited here as they're really trying to ratchet up the tension and really give the feel that the Nazgul are just, you know, right off screen, ready to uh, pounce on the hobbits and reclaim the ring for their own. So um, I do enjoy uh, all those scenes in the book, but I do get why some of that was extracted uh, just to kind of keep the tone and the mood uh, in line with the scenes that proceed and succeed this one. Yeah, and I think it's also part, you know, not not like in a nefarious or like conspiratorial way, but like um, Barlam and Barber and and the books represent sort of a, a slightly more well-to-do figure, which would have been accurate. Tavern Tavern keeps um, in the pre-modern era were certainly among the the sort of better resourced and wealthier um, folk in a town. You know, they usually had some sort of position on like regional governance, regional or local governance. They are like definitely important pillars of the community in in terms of like wealth and morality. Um, and that's not necessarily something that plays so well, both in a film that is like largely class agnostic um, and in a film that is kind of trying to play up the like, um, rightfully, I would say, play up the like rough post-apocalyptic nature of uh, Middle Earth. Uh, you kind of can't have uh, like your your pseudo petty bourgeois folk hanging around because that kind of uh, ruins the edgy sheen a bit. <laughs> Yeah, and that's probably why you don't see his two uh, servants or two hobbits that work as employees at the inn uh, named Bob and Nob. <laughs> I don't have much on them, but I just love that cute little naming convention of Bob and Nob. Uh, but uh, enough about Barliman. Again, he doesn't have that much of a presence. Uh, but someone who does have a lot of presence, and we're about to open one of the big Pandora's box in terms of characters, is Strider. So I will take a little bit of a backseat here and let Emily start our introduction into the king who will return soon enough. Oh boy, this is brave. Um, so I'm going to start with like a a bit of the, the sort of... Um, Oh, and damn, now I don't want to say meta, um, but it's impossible to not say meta. Oh, uh, the the meta narrative, the, the the background context on Strider as a character, um, because I think it's actually really interesting and it is quite reflective of like how a lot of the more interesting characters in uh, the Legendarium come to be, which is that Tolkien essentially starts writing a scene and decides that a character should appear there and the characters appear there and suddenly become the most important characters in the books. Um, and I just want to read here a quick uh, excerpt uh, sentence, really, from one of Tolkien's letters. It's letter 216, if you're one of the folk that would be interested in that. Um, but Tolkien says, um, I've never been to Bree. Um, Strider sitting in the corner at the inn was a shock, and I had no more idea who he was than had Frodo. Um, and he uses this language to describe a couple more um, characters throughout the series, and, and I will highlight them every single time because I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but nevertheless, um, uh, th this king in the corner, this hooded man, is uh, really just a, a cool guy in a pub. Um, and Tolkien was like, wouldn't it be brilliant if he was an ancient king? Uh, and that is really the start of like the dude's rock subplot of Lord of the Rings. Um, 
Aragorn himself, uh, now that we get into like the, the in-universe, in-text uh, character, um, is uh, one of the first uh, characters that we meet in this series, who is a man of many names. Um, so he's got um, Aragorn, which in Sindarin means uh, revered king. Um, he's also called Astal by the elves, uh, which means hope and like trust. Um, and it's here important, or not important, but important, deeply important to me that I contrast this to the word slash name Amdir, uh, which means like uh, which also means kind of hope and optimism, but is kind of a more reckless, ungrounded hope. And Estelle is like grounded hope, as in like belief in something that could possibly happen, whereas Amdir is, you know, kind of uh, a fantastical, naive hope. There's So those are the two sender names. And then you've got Strider, who um, which is the name given to him by like the Bremen. Um, and that comes from the common tongue or Westron, as it's called in universe. Um, and this one rocks because it's literally just a... Uh, play on the fact that he is um, meant to be close to seven foot tall. Um, uh, some amazing uh, Tolkien fans online did the math, and I think he is close to six foot seven canonically. Uh, so Strider is literally just, he has long strides. Um, and then um, this is also the name that he translates into Quenya, which is like the kind of high elven Latin, Latinate language um, that he uh, uses to to get the name Talcantar, which is the uh, how the name of his house once he becomes king. Um, so I think we're up to like four names here, and then we've also got the Rongil, which is never mentioned in the films, but is also another sender and one, and it means um, eagle of the star, and that's the one that he uses when he's cutting about in Gondor and Rohan some forty years before the start of uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, and this is one that I will go into later. Um, but all this to say, um, before I pause, um, I have beef with Aragorn. I have ongoing beef with Aragorn, um, and I would like to roundhouse kick him directly into the sun, but he's also one of the most fascinating characters in the Legendarium, um, and, uh, absolutely deserves, uh, an episode of his own, um, if not a, a whole podcast of his own, um, cause he is really just a remarkably crafted character and in universe is also remarkable um but i do want to sucker punch him so some nice little caveats there <laughs> yeah um one of the names that i am kind of familiar with is king elisar and maybe i'll have you explain that one in a second but i came across that name kind of pre-twitter um before i was you know shit posting my brains out on that uh poisoned website i was a regular at the rotten tomato message boards um before it dominated film pop culture criticism discourse like it does today but uh one of the um mods over at the rotten tomato message boards uh, had the screen name king lsr8 and having been a movie guy with the lord of the rings not having read the books i had no idea what king lsr8 you know, stood for um, until, you know, we had one of those forum posts that was, you know, explain your username. And then when this person said, oh, this is the name Aragon used when he, you know, ruled in Gondor, um, you know, that was the first time I'd even heard of that name. Um, of course, when I actually came back and read the books and reread the books, I saw it a little bit more. Um, but I don't think Elisar, it might be like mentioned once in the entire trilogy as like one of those like whispers uh, from like Sauron, like trying to tempt him either uh, like at the Black Gate or something like that. But I don't think it's really ever explicitly said by character or to character in like a normal dialogue. 
Um, so do you have any information on that? Yeah, so um, Elasar means elf stone in Quenya, which is, again, this kind of Latinate language um, of the elves. Um, that is a reference to an actual stone. Um, in in the films, it's the, the jewel that um, Arwen um, passes along to Aragorn, um, which we will talk about, I'm sure, in depth later. Um, but it is meant to be a, a stone that was gifted to uh, Gandalf Mithrandrir when he was still out west um, in the hopes that he would one day give it to the uh, king who would defeat uh, Sauron. Um, and Elfstone is also a name that... Um, Aragorn occasionally uses in the books. Um, it is this is like this is kind of like the true like pretentious level of like Aragorn calls himself this pre uh, coronation when he's kind of trying to flex on people and it, it, usually in the scenes that make me hate him as a character quite a bit. Um, but yes, uh, Elfstone uh, that is what it is um, in Latin, Elf Latin. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I'm learning something every time we talk. <laughs> And um, like uh, Emily kind of mentioned, we're probably going to do a full Aragon episode or break down his character in more detail at some later point. But I do want to get some really broad stroke facts out here. Most of the facts that you will all know um, just from the story of these films is that he's the heir of Isildur um, and he has an extended age. He grows to be 210 years old, I believe, in total. Mm -hmm. um, during the time of these movies, the character of Aragon is supposed to be about 86 um, his father was killed by orcs when he was two, which led to him being fostered at Rivendale, where he would fall in love with Arwen, who we will be meeting a couple episodes from now. Ah, uh, yes. Um, and the, this Rivendell stuff is interesting and important because, um, as I've sort of mentioned several times now, I think... Um, uh, Rivendell is uh, ruled over by Arond Half-Elven, whose brother um, Alros took the path of men um, and uh, later founded the, the kingdom of Numenor, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Rivendell, quite close to the men um, in terms of history, but not actually functionally very close to the men practically. Um, typically men, and this is capital M, men here standing in for humans, don't really pass through Rivendell. So um, Aragorn's mother, Gilrain, uh, choosing to go to Rivendell to foster him is very, very significant um, and is, is sort of one of these like establishing moments, pre-establishing moments for his character as kind of like the this great unifier of the various races of Middle-earth. Um, Gilrain, his mother, dies in Rivendell, um, I think just of old age, as far as I'm aware, um, or a heartbreak as like loads of Tolkien's women do. Um, but on her tombstone um, in in Quenya, I believe it is, is something to the effect of, um, I gave my hope to the Dunedain and kept no hope for myself, which is literally a play on his name, Astel, the nickname Astel, um, and is just a horrifyingly sad way to start your life if you are Aragorn, knowing that like you, your mother feels like she has had to sacrifice her you her son um her love of you for this greater crusade in the world uh so no wonder he has some feelings about being king oh that's great and um i like how they were able to kind of bring this uh line about i kept no hope for myself uh later on in return of the king um it's uh when alron hands him Anduril, flame of the west um, you know, Elrond says he brings men hope and Aragorn says he keeps none for himself, uh, which, you know, 
you know, people might, you know, quibble with that uh, adaptation, but I do like when they work these kind of lines in there at some point. Um, Alron, despite their contentious nature in these films, kind of is his foster father in a little way. Um, so um, I do like that little bit that's beaten. Um, and speaking about his sword, or at least the sword that he will come to wield come Return of the King, um, we're going to save that um, for uh, when we get to Rivendell, uh, you know, a few episodes down the line, where we'll see the Shards of Narsil, which will eventually be reforged into Andoril. Um, and likewise, he has an iconic ring, the Ring of Barahir, which is uh, kind of discussed more in the Two Towers Extended Edition. And, you know, maybe you should uh, sub the Patreon so we can talk about that, you know, sometime next year when we get to the Two Towers. Yes, absolutely do it, because there's so much fun stuff in there. And it's actually fun, not just my kind of fun. <laughs> yes. And then... Um, What's it called? Uh, he uh, Aragon is one of the Dunedain uh, or Rangers from the North, which is something we're going to dive into uh, more fully in our Token Token book section. And uh, again, I don't want to uh, hammer this home like for the third time in a row, but we'll probably have to do a full episode on Aragorn um, because there's so many other things we can go into, such as like skill his skills as a healer um how he served under both theoden and denethor's fathers um about the trope of the man who would be king and how that also plays into stuff that precedes the lord of the rings like uh you know Arthur, or king arthur legends as well as everything that borrowed after it you know john snow is perhaps the most prominent example in kind of modern day fiction of someone who's playing on a lot of the tropes and story arcs that aragorn laid down in the lord of the rings Ah, yes. Uh, yeah. And I think one of the, the sort of crucial elements for dealing with, um, movie Aragorn in particular is that because a lot of these things go unexplained for the most part in the films, he brings with him this kind of mysteriousness, um, that, um, I think imparts on us as the viewers that same sense of like, holy shit, what are we getting into that the hobbits are feeling as they step into this darkened pub in Bree? Um, and, and I think it's actually like, you know, uh, I, I have this ongoing fight with myself over whether or not it's a shame that some of this stuff wasn't included and whether or not it would have been like possible in an entertaining and like concise way to have included some of these things. And I go back and forth and we'll probably go back and forth a million times in the course of this podcast. But I think at least in some ways, narratively, it is quite interesting how much, um, like how mysterious Aragorn remains the whole way through the films, um, because it is just this sense of like there's something always beyond um, the the edge of the camera frame, um, and we don't necessarily get to find out what it is, but it's definitely there, and it's there to be discovered at some point. Yeah, I um, I literally made uh, the Frodo face at the Council of Elrond when you know every when Legolas announces actually the Strider guy is actually Arathorn, son of Ar or Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and heir to the throne of Gondor. Like that was like a you know holy shit moment for me the first time watching Fellowship of the Ring. I was like, oh okay, um, I had no idea. I just thought he was you know the cool guy in the pub like you described earlier. Um, so that kind of revelation which they. I can't remember when we find that find that out in the text, um, but it definitely worked for me in a way that it worked in universe for the characters at the Council of Elrond. 
Yeah, it's pretty quick in the books as well. Because uh, and and I will come back to this. And like part part of this is just me dunking on Aragorn because I dislike him. But but a lot of this is also based in fact. He literally never shuts up about it. He does not ever shut the fuck up about the fact that he is like the rightful king and that his like line descends from um, Isildur. And I, I will note um, also that it also descends from Anarion, and he never really talks about that. But that's something we're going to come to in the next episode. Um, he never stops talking about it. There is no mystery to Aragorn really at any point um, in in at least Fellowship, um, except for like the first five pages of Bray. Um, and I think it is a good choice to make him slightly more humble um, and slightly more capable of not running his mouth constantly because um, it definitely makes him more likable. <laughs> yes. Um, and speaking of making Aragorn likable, let's talk about Viggo Mortensen, who Oof. plays uh, the character. He's a Danish-American actor, though he was not um, one of the original uh, casting choices. Um, they first brought in Stuart Townsend for the uh, first set of rehearsals. I couldn't find much on this actor. I think he's mostly a British stage actor and more famous for smaller roles. Um, the more interesting thing is that Daniel Day-Lewis uh, was offered this role, uh, but he turned it down, which is just kind of one of those fun AUs to think about if we had, you know, um, the Daniel Woodcock version of uh, <laughs> Aragorn or any of his other iconic characters, like from There Will Be Blood or Last of the Mohicans or anything like that. Um, but uh, I know you want to talk a little bit about how uh, the depiction of Aragorn here is kind of a play on rugged individualism and what it means in relation to uh, his character. Yeah. So, um, so this is something that I kind of, again, go back and forth on because I have to, as I'm talking about a, a lot of these sort of like historical and cultural contexts for these films, I'm having to remind myself um, that Peter Jackson is um, not American and uh, not British. Um, and so a lot of the very specific cultural um, context will not necessarily apply as strongly, but it is also important to note that the, the um, American uh, what goes on in America is transmitted willingly or not to the rest of the world, certainly the Anglo world. Um, and Peter Jackson is very much of the Anglo world. And I think a lot of his uh, work reflects what is uh, going on in like the ideological hegemony of the Anglosphere, which is a lot of words to say. Um, I know he's not American. I know he's not British, but it, that does not mean that what's going on in America and Britain in the 1990s does not apply to him. Because it very much does. Um, so, just for like a super quick, like eighth grade level, eighth grade U.S. history level recap, um, rugged individualism is uh, is something that kind of kicks off in the uh, mid to late nineteenth century as sort of a response to this like bourgeois anti emotions revolution because you can't make money off of emotions and you can't cry and so you have to be like really tough and manly to make money all the time. Um, and the Americans, as Americans always do, uh, take it and pump that up to eleven um, and connect it to like the notion of man. Manifest Destiny, which is the imperialism, like the the doctrine of imperialism within North America, um, and this notion that um, Americans have a God-given right to control the land that is apparently not populated by other people. Um, I guess all of the uh, hundreds of millions of Native Americans that the uh, American settlers wiped out uh, just don't count. Nevertheless, uh, it is a, a vision of masculinity and um, 
a vision of, of a lifestyle that demands um, like a complete like centrality of like self-sufficiency. Um, so as a man to be a proper masculine man, you must be able to go out and chop wood and build a log cabin, uh, you know, what is it, Lincoln log cabin. Um, and you must be able to kill and skin a rabbit and you must be able to uh, go through the world entirely on your own and never need to rely on anybody else because you are so tough and so manly that this entire sense of community is just completely below you. Um, and community itself and like reliance on other people is like a, like a, like a feminine and therefore like quite bad thing. Um, there is also, um, and it is important to note, like for um, every sort of like hardline political and social um, movement, there is also like an aesthetic component to it. Um, and um, I would be remiss to not mention like Clint Eastwood um, and the the sort of rise of like hard masculinity, and also like the like sexualization of it, um, and this notion that like men who are alone and tough and can do for themselves are like sexy, right? Um, and this is this is a huge part of. Um, how, uh, of the way that Vigo Martensen plays Aragorn is through this this kind of um, like loner, but not Columbine loner, loner in like rugged individualistic way, um, kind of mysterious, like good looking guy um, who you want to know more of, more about, not because he necessarily is super charismatic at, at, at the start um, or because he has a lot to offer you, but because he's quite good looking and you want to be around him. Um this is, um, I think, I, no, I, I don't think, I know this is not the Aragorn of the books um, because that that sort of rugged individualism is not really a thing that is culturally present in Britain in the same way, certainly not in the 1940s and 50s um, and not really now. Um, so Tolkien isn't writing his ideal king, who is Aragorn, to be a rugged individualist. Um, this is something that is new to these films um, and is important to think about in the context of the 1990s and the... Um, distant hell that is the 1990s um, because of like the rise of um, neoliberalism and the sort of bastard version new American libertarianism that becomes popular and this idea that um, not only do we not necessarily need communities in the same way and that's never really articulated as such um, certainly not by by uh, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair um, but that is the sort of undercurrent of all of this is we don't need we don't need it we don't need anybody but ourselves, um, and we also don't need the state to take care of us. We will take care of us completely on our own um, with the money that we make somehow. Um, I don't know how we make it if we're not relying on other people, but whatever. Um, we'll just do it all for ourselves, and um, as we do all of these things for ourselves, we will kind of embody this like heavy masculinity of self-sufficiency. Um, and, and Viggo Mortensen's Aragorn is definitely this caricature this stereotype um done very very sympathetically um i really really like his aragorn but it, this is definitely the context from from which he is playing um aragorn and i also think the 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 context from which he markets himself because if you look at a lot of the like press stories fluff press stories that were uh published about him in the run-up to lord of the rings and the sort of like press junkets around it um they are also definitely playing up like Vigo Mortensen is an actual real life ranger um and yes uh this is an ongoing thing um anyways I felt it's really really important to mention this because we will inevitably get into the discussions about how masculinity plays in these films um again if I can just point to the title of this 
um, podcast, my brother, my captain, my pod, or my king in the films, um, there is like a there is an interesting play on masculinity and what is and isn't acceptable emotionally. Um, and before we get there, before we get to the like the crying and the kissing, we have to start with this hardline masculinity in in Aragorn. Yeah, it's almost like the films are positing like the great man theory of Middle Earth, um, which usually stands in you know contrast to something that's more like you know historical materialism, where you know history is driven by class struggle, um, as opposed to like a great man theory, where it's like history is shaped by these great men who kind of like change the flow of time or are able to bend it to whatever purposes they have, and we kind of see that. You know, we've already talked about how much these films kind of flatten a lot of the class aspects for good and ill. Um, there's also a lot of community with uh, Aragorn in the sense that um, he's, you know, associated with the Dunedain and we do meet the other Rangers of the North or the great company, which we'll talk about later in our book section a little bit, but like all of that is completely extricated. So it does feel like the story is centered um, just around this man, his individualistic sense and like, what he chooses to do ends up driving the momentum of history, um, or at least for the kingdoms of men. But all that discussion, and I don't think there's, I don't know, anything analytical here, but as soon as you started talking about, you know, kind of that like cool, um, rugged individual, the loner type, um, I was thinking about another famous film hero that we meet in a bar, and that's Han Solo. Um, and again, I don't really have much to go here, but I had never really put together that kind of our introduction to both of these characters is very similar. Um Maybe it's just that the, you meet both of them at a pub or at a bar, um, but there's definitely that's kind of the same kind of you know rugged individualistic hero in Hollywood cinema that you can maybe see Viggo Mortensen taking from, um, if not someone like a John McClane from the Die Hard movies or something like that as well. Yeah, no, I I um, I'm really glad that you mentioned Hans Solo because this is one of my ongoing things. You know, I will like start writing about this and then stop and then start again every couple of months. But I think. Um, Han Solo is very, very interesting to me as like a figure of masculinity. And I think especially in comparison to Aragorn um, and particularly, and this is going to sound like the worst nerd shit ever, but particularly in light of the um, changing of who shot first in A New Hope, whether it's Han or Greedo. Um, and I, uh, I will need to like iron this out how I say this so that it doesn't sound as like completely deranged as it's going to right now. But I think the fact that um, there is this change to have Greedo shoot first first is very much in line with this like 1990s sort of um new take on like morality and politics and this this sort of necessity of like all of of imagining that all of the people around us are uh worse and more aggressively amoral than we are um and that just like therefore justifies our like aloneness and isolation um and so having Greedo shoot instead of Han is a way of justifying Han shooting um when before Han just shoots because he knows he needs to um and there's not really this need to just anyways not not a need to justify it yada 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 I think um Han and Aragorn actually represent two um opposite sides of the coin on in terms of masculinity and I would actually say that um Han Solo's masculinity is a lot more like soft and feminine and fluid than Aragorn's, at least in the films, which might be controversial, but I promise now that I've said this, I'm going to start plotting this out a little more sanely. <laughs> um, and uh, after all that kind of meatiness, I do want to take a second and uh, kind of revel in some of the humor 
uh, that we discussed in these scenes. I mean, they're mostly grim until the very end, but we get the very iconic second breakfast spiel from Pippin, um, which involves Mary and Aragorn as well. And it's just a really great moment of comic relief. Um, it's basically positioned between uh, Nazgul and Isengard scenes. Um, and, you know, things are feeling kind of bleak for the hobbits and obviously Frodo's going to get stabbed at uh, stabbed stabbed at Weathertop and Gandalf's imprisoned at Isengard and uh, you know Isengard is transforming into the war machine so there's a lot of grim stuff kind of around what's happening at this moment in the story um so I kind of like that they have this kind of second breakfast uh sequence which you know, has kind of taken on a life of its own. It's like one of the most quotable, if not the most quotable part of the entire films is the second breakfast uh, sequence. So I just wanted to highlight it because I feel like people would be mad if we talked about this scene and did not <laughs> spend a little bit of time talking about second breakfast and Elevensies, luncher, sup- luncheon, supper, dinner, and all the rest. Yeah, and I mean, it also sets up, importantly for me and my pro-Pippin agenda, um, Pippin as someone no one can ever say no to, um, because even Aragorn, who's being all tough and hard man or whatever, um, can't not feed Pippin when Pippin asks, and that is because Pippin is an angel. Pippin is the best. He's the best boy. The best boyd, even. Um, (laughs) And then uh, the last thing I want to talk about here in the analysis, and this actually kind of starts pivoting a little bit into our cinematography and film craft section, is um, how they depict the Wraith world or the world that uh, Frodo inhabits when he wears the ring. Um, A lot happens here. I kind of called it out in the recap that um, everyone kind of moves in slow motion or at least a little bit slower than they do in real time uh, through the eyes of the ring bearer at the time. Um, Everything's kind of blurred out. Um, There's kind of just like this gray, hazy lens uh, put on top of it. And then there's also some uh, narrative effects because we see that it acts as a beacon to the Nazgul as if wearing or using the ring explicitly like marks your location on the map that the Nazgul have um, so that they can ride directly to that location and complete their fetch quest. Um, So uh, what are your thoughts on how the film decides to depict uh, the Wraith world, so to speak? Yeah, I quite like it because, um, I mean, that's such like a weak way of starting this, but I think it gets to um, that kind of calmer sense of like um, alienation that is like easy to do in the books because you have thousands of words per chapter that you can dedicate to explaining exactly how Frodo feels when he puts the ring on and knows that the uh, Nazgul are now coming for his ass. Um, but you can't really do that in a way that isn't going to immediately feel quite hokey in films unless you do it like this. Um, and I think because there's this sort of half real, half not, and also because um, the the films have committed so strongly and so effectively to doing the storybook aesthetic um, and to, to not you know, wasting their currency on trying to make it feel like it could be incredibly real and gritty, you get this super, super effective sequence um, that also in some ways um, feels to me, um, and this is something I think I'm going to have to talk about when we get to um, Arwen uh, at the Fords of Brennan, um, but it, it feels to me quite similar to like a pre-Raphaelite painting. Um, and the pre-Raphaelite um, art movement is definitely a huge source of inspiration for these films. Um, and as I said, we're definitely going to have to come back and talk about it later. But like, it, there are several um, paintings, and I'm not going to try and name a single one of them because um, I will just embarrass myself if I do. Um, but pre-Raphaelite paintings that have this vibe, um, a lot of them involve like Cersei um, from the Odyssey. Um, but yes, um, I think it is really beautifully and brilliantly handled. 
Yeah, and a lot of this is kind of putting us in the Wraith world here just to set up the fact that it's going to, you know, have very prominent importance at the at the Weathertop scene, which we're going to discuss, I believe, in our next episode. Um, a couple other things is uh, mentioning that uh, when uh, the hobbits arrive at the end of the Prancing Pony, we get another one of those great establishing shots in terms of height and the difference of races, um, because we see that the hobbits are shorter than the counter, and that uh, Barliman uh, Butterbur, you know, first looks for a human-sized person to be waiting for him at the you know reception desk, but then looks down to you know upon the four hobbits there. Um, I didn't call it out in the previous episode either, but when they arrived at the gate of the Bree, um, the gatekeeper had like a man-sized, you know, kind of window up top and then a lower window to look to see if there are any hobbits there. So again, just hammering home, you know, that kind of physical difference to kind of accentuate maybe even more so that the hobbits are a little bit fish out of water in these scenes. Yeah. And I think it's also one of these things where it's like a good way of setting up because like, yes, Barlaman Barber goes for looking for a man first, but then he knows to adjust. And the further we get in these films, the farther away we get from the Shire, the fewer and fewer people think to do that. The fewer and fewer like concessions there are um, for people of Hobbit height. Um, And I know like a lot of disability scholars, I was actually at the Tolkien Society summer seminar um, a few months ago, um, and someone actually was talking about um, the way that the hobbits are in various points throughout the stories used as stand-ins for like people who are disabled by war. Um, and there is like a good kind of interesting trail about like um, how people aren't disabled. It's the the world around them that disables them. Um, and I think if you kind of keep your mind on that as you watch the hobbits as they continue on through their track of like Middle Earth, um, you really start to pick up on how effective a framework that is just through um, something as simple as the hobbits being short. <laughs> you know, a certain movie came out about a month prior to Fellowship of the Ring that I think you want to mention here too. Oh boy. Um, yeah, so I, so obviously I, well not obviously, but um, I uh, did not watch Lord of the Rings until I was quite old. Um, I grew up on Harry Potter um, and um, when I saw this scene for the first time, I was like, oh wow, it's the Leaky Cauldron. This is exactly like the scene in um, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone when um, Harry and Hagrid show up in the Leaky Cauldron and uh, Coral uh, starts saying some wild shit about uh, Harry's family and his parents getting murdered and it looks and feels exactly like this um, and um, as I have now recently learned uh, Fellowship came out um, a month before so it's fine and safe but it is interesting that there's this like aesthetic convergence on like dark smoky pubs I wonder if that's because of the smoking ban I can't remember when the smoking ban came in but maybe it was like ready nostalgia for the days when you can smoke in a pub nevertheless it looks exactly like Philosopher's Stone, um, and that is tragic. Poor Peter Jackson. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know how it would apply in England or uh, you know the UK. Um, I think from my own anecdotal knowledge of history, um, like I think the first uh, smoking bans and like pubs were in California here, and that might have been like late nineties, maybe early two thousands. And I'm just kind of like talking like shit off the top of my head. I don't know that for certain, Uh, but it came to Chicago, I want to say in the late aughts, um, because uh, after I graduated college um, and, you know, went to bars in the city of Chicago, um, I believe there was a short period where people were still smoking uh, cigarettes in bars. um, But that was like, that quickly went away, um, you know, by the mid to late aughts. So just kind of you know, keeping track of that. And uh, speaking of smoking, we can talk about Strider here, who's uh, introduced. We see him as a man hooded, 
hooded in black in the corner. Um, he stays in the shadows. Um, it gives it almost kind of a noir feel to it. Like he's kind of a PI, like hiding in the back of a bar, tailing some, you know, Hollywood starlet from like the 40s or 50s films. Um, and there's this really great shot um, because like I said, his hood kind of covers his eyes, but then they, we see him lighting his little pipe um, and the way that the, you know, flames on the weed uh, kind of illuminate his face for the first time and we see his eyes. And there is a little bit of his appearance that is supposed to be a little bit evocative of the ring grace and the fact that they're all in black. And, you know, we'll get to Aragon more and that the fact that the ring grace are ostensibly, at least in the films, maybe of relation to uh, Isildur and Aragon himself. But um, I really like this introduction. Definitely creates this air of mystery around him um, and evokes some of that classic Hollywood that we've kind of talked about throughout the podcast. Yeah, and he just looks cool as shit. Like, I, I think it's one of the things where, like, he has this kind of vintage feeling of cool. And, uh, like, I, I think there's this... Um, I, I think it's like good and and helpful that you mentioned like the the sort of old world old world noir films because that is kind of the like vintage cool that this film is reaching back to with Aragorn as a way to establish himself. Um, and I think you compare it also to the kind of like youthfulness of the Hobbits. Um, and they're they're not really cool. They're cool in the way that like you think you're cool when you're like 18 and you're going out drinking for the first time, but they're not really cool. And then you get to Aragorn and he's like properly cool and it's like ah, I'm in the big leagues now. Like I I get it. I get what cool looks like. I now know what I need to aspire to. <laughs> um I did change my entire fashion sense after seeing Aragorn in these movies. <laughs> um one thing I did not adapt, though, was uh, wearing rings, uh, and I, that's a really clunky segue into the next <laughs> shot I want to talk about. Um, it's uh, Frodo falling backwards and launching the ring up in the air. Um, we see it kind of spinning, you know, in slow motion, hanging in the air, and this is a shot they'll kind of refer to uh Again, in future movies, uh, I think the two towers specifically, just kind of as a mood or establishing vibe shot um, of the ring whenever they want to kind of show it. They'll just show it kind of flipping in the air and it kind of comes from this moment. Um, and then the way the uh, ring kind of falls onto Frodo's hand and finger and it kind of rims around his uh, pointer finger, kind of like a basketball around a rim um, as it slowly kind of rims around and then slowly kind of lands um, onto his finger and we're kind of led to believe that the ring kind of changed shape so that it would you know neatly fall onto his hand um, and then he would you know bear the ring for the first time officially yeah and this is one of the things so i i was quite young in the early 2000s but i really remember basketball and basketball films being a much bigger thing back back in the day back back in my the days of my youth and because i i put this in our notes but the film like mike i feel like came out quite near this Um, and this really has no like analytical value whatever this is just me being completely insane um but i and I'm like, oh, were bas- like, was basketball much bigger back in the late 90s, early 2000s? Because I feel like that is not really a shot you could do right now and have that same kind of vibe going. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like people wouldn't think to go basketball here. They would probably do like some Marvel slide or something like with motorcycles or whatever. <laughs> if that makes sense. Oh, it does. And boy, can I speak to you about the importance of basketball in the late 90s? And I think a lot of this is directly tied to Michael Jordan, uh, which is probably what that Like Mike video is referring to. Uh, Michael Jordan is really 
um, at least in terms of breaking through the realm of sports into pop culture broadly, may be um, our best example of it, or at least one of our best early examples of it, um, because things like Space Jam really took off during this time. Uh, it really took basketball to a national level, um, whereas you know football and baseball specifically are very much viewed as kind of American sports, even though um, I don't want to elide that baseball has a strong presence in the Pacific Rim, in Japan, Korea, and all those countries. Um, but they're definitely viewed as kind of American sports. And Michael Jordan really launched the popularity of basketball internationally. Um, and that's why you see a lot more kind of crossovers with pop culture, like movies like Space Jam or movies like He Got Game um, with Jesus Shuttleworth, uh, which is just a great character name. If anyone's seen that movie, I believe it's a Spike Lee joint, but I'm not entirely sure. Spike Lee also, you know, a prominent filmmaker who brought the NBA, the Jordan aesthetic to his films. Um, and we also see just in terms of fashion, this is where like NBA sneakers um, and kind of wearing jerseys around all the time really took off. And again, a lot of this is Michael Jordan. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a diehard Bulls fan and grew <laughs> up with the Michael Jordan Bulls of the 90s. But it really was one of those biggest, you know, kind of monoculture, cultural zeitgeist crossover between sports and uh, pop culture broadly that I can remember. And I can't really think of anyone really since that has really captured it in the same way, um, whether it's, you know, Peyton Manning or Derek Jeter or whoever the biggest names are in other sports. I don't think anyone kind of had a big fallout that affected all of pop culture the way that Michael Jordan and those 90s Bulls did. So that's my theory for why they went with kind of the, um, you know, rim shot here for um, the putting on of the ring. I'm kind of grateful for it as well, because I feel like I'm thinking about what the potential alternatives would be, and I don't think they would hold up quite so well, because I feel like basketball is always, like, even if people don't like watching it, it always looks cool. Um, and, like, mm -hmm. I say this as someone who grew up playing ice hockey, so, like, uh, it's not like I don't have respect for other sports, but, like, ice hockey has, like, a certain look to it, but it's not always as cool looking as basketball and even like that horrible was it had the Halle Berry Catwoman movie where they had this horrible like basketball scene where it's just cut yep. after cut after cut yeah like even then like it looks like shit but it still looks kind of cool <laughs> like anyways I digress um yeah the basketball vibes um are brilliant and it's quite fun and like a nice little cultural trinket <laughs> sorry I mean you just kind of got me on this <laughs> thinking now but just because you mentioned Catwoman uh both of the Spider-Man ones in terms of the Sam Raimi first Spider-Man movie and um, the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man movie. Uh, when Peter Parker first gets his power, he kind of realizes in both cases of, in the on the basketball court, um, which was definitely not super popular in 1964 when Stan Lee and Steve Ditko were, you know, creating the Spider-Man mythos. So yeah, basketball just specifically, I think is kind of a universal language of sports now in a way that um, not many other sports um, can. And I think you're right that it's infinitely more watchable um, just because it's always moving in a way that, you know, other sports aren't always. Um, so it makes it a very easy thing to kind of watch and pick up and understand what's happening. Word. Uh, <laughs> enough basketball talk. <laughs> um, the last thing I want to talk about with this ring shot is the fact that um, we get um, these upshots and downshots, like when the ring is falling down onto Roto's, uh, Frodo's finger, um, we have a downshot that's kind of focused on the ring, and it kind of shows the power of Sauron closing in on Frodo um, visually, which will happen, you know, narratively in seconds thereafter when he actually sees the eye of Sauron. Um, but then also 
Frodo looking up at um, the ring falling down on his finger and all the people surrounding him kind of creates a sense that he's being encroached on or something's coming to get him, that he's not in a position of power, which again is something we've talked about extensively in previous episodes. They keep using something as simple as camera angles to denote power and what's happening with characters on screen. Yeah, and I think it's also like important because like Frodo is really holding one of the most powerful weapons in the history of this universe. And even then, even as he is about to like put it on and essentially use it, whether inadvertently or not, he still is more or less powerless. Um, and he still is not as like strong or as important as significant as all of the other people around him. And I think that is like so important for establishing who Frodo is as a character because he's not the strongest, he's not the wisest, he's not the cleverest. He is just Frodo. And that is why he's so capable of taking on this burden in a way that, you know, all of the other like fantastical characters that we come across aren't. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and then when the Nazgul arrive at the inn, we get a couple very memorable shots. Uh, we see their horses barging through that gate we talked about last episode. Um, but the shots I really love is there's an overhead shot of all of them going down the streets of Bree and entering the inn, uh, which is just, it's all black, dark, dark blues. Um, but there's a lot of mist uh, around. So it kind of creates the sense of ghosts coming in uh, or a haunted you know mansion or a haunted village kind of feel almost out of like Silent Hill or Resident Evil. Um, and then uh, those go right into a shot of Barliman hiding behind the counter. Um, and he kind of takes up the entire right side of the frame. And he's kind of closing his eyes out of fear and, you know, just kind of despair. Uh, while behind him, we can see the Nazgul passing past him. But we only see their gauntlets with their swords in hand. Um, it's a really imposing shot. And it's really menacing and really setting the tone for um, the scene or the climax of these scenes at the end of The Prancing Pony. Yeah, and I think both of these shots, the one with Frodo on the ground and about to get the ring dropped onto his finger, and the one with Barlow and Barbar hiding behind uh, his uh, bar top, are important because they are like quite exaggerated facial expressions that both of the actors are making. I and mean, again, I think this kind of comes back to this like sense of like the storybook telling um, for for vibe for the the films um, because they their faces act as kind of theatrical masks. And I don't really believe that, um, you know, you know, real people, quote unquote, um, who were in these situations would be making these exact facial expressions. I think they're far too exaggerated. Um, but I don't think that's a sign of like bad acting per se. I think that's a sign of like a very strong creative choice, which is to evoke the like epic Greek epic style scale of what's going on in these films and you have to have this almost overacting to really convey that and it's just i really beautifully done i think yeah when you put in the notes that they kind of remind you of theatrical masks from greek tragedy or what have you um that blew my mind because i think that's exactly what they are doing they are playing it up you know to the nth degree you know getting maximum impact these movies do have I don't know if I want to call it camp, um, but there's just a certain kind of heightened reality to them. Um, in, that, in a way, not that's cartoonish, but it's just like everything's just a little more elevated in this story or the telling of the story. And um, the way they do that through facial expressions and the way they linger on those facial expressions. And you can clearly see people emoting in ways that they might not do actually, um, I think actually just adds as opposed to detracts or take you out of it. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think we'll get to this a lot more. Um, I will certainly talk about this ad nauseum when we get to um, Denethor in, uh, in Return of the King. And I keep wanting to say Revenge of the King, Return of the King, uh, <laughs> with, um, that'd be a hell of a movie, uh, with the like uh, horrible cherry tomato eating scene. But that is like a part of this sort of like inherent like theatricality and like high drama and like the choice to have it when it's like so patently ridiculous and like the memification of it obviously like shows how ridiculous it is um is still i think like an important part of this like ongoing sense that like there is something slightly unreal about it but because there is something slightly unreal about it you're able to like evoke and empathize with the emotions more than if it was played as like purely like hyper realistic as we get with you know so many films you know nowadays (laughs) yeah um, and then getting to the Nazgul attack on the beds, more or less. Um, I really just like how this uh, scene is cut because, you know, we see the hob- or the Nazgul entering um, the Hobbit's room. And it's kind of like a sweeping shot from their beds up to the Nazgul, who are kind of tallly uh, standing over them. It's definitely one of those up angles once again. And they're holding their swords in almost a religious way. They're kind of like crosses in front of them. Um, and then... Uh, when they go to each bed and they rise up to strike at each of the, you know, beds, um, the camera, camera pans down from like the hilts of the sword down to the points of the blade, which just kind of emphasizes the, you know, the lethality of their weapons. And when they start driving them into, um, the beds, um, we immediately cut to Sam's eyes opening, which is just like, you know, a quick little distraction or diversion or sleight of hand where you're meant to think that they just stabbed Sam. Um, but in the end, you know, it turns out that, what's it called? You know, the hobbits are safe across the way in Aragorn's room. Um, but I really like how they're cutting between the two, even though it's obviously a misdirect because we're not killing the four <laughs> hobbits here, especially when, you know, Aragorn seems to be somewhat prepared for them. Uh, but it's just a, kind of a nice job of using cuts to kind of set up what's going to happen, um, even playing it a little bigger or maybe more unrealistically than it would actually be. Um, but I really like the effects here. And uh, we'll we'll talk more about kind of cutting between two things when we get more to like the two towers and the scene of Aragorn tracking what happened to Merry and Pippin um, in Rohan. But I'll I'll leave off for now. Yeah, and I think this is, like, a a good place to kind of introduce, like, as we talk about, you know, the differences between the books and the films and what the limitations of each are and, and, you know, why they lend themselves to the form that they take. And, like, this is something, this is, a like, a sequence that you could not have as effectively, I mean, you could do it, but I don't imagine that it would be particularly good in a book. Um, You can't create suspense um, using these cutaways as effectively in writing as you can in a film. And, and I think this is really representative of like, and you know, this, this whole scene isn't necessarily played out as such in, in the books. Um, but this is really a good example of how like the creative team behind these films is sitting down and thinking about like what the like advantages are of this medium that they're using, um, to adapt these books, um, and how they can, you know, more faithfully evoke the, the like emotionality of the text without being a hundred percent faithful to the text by using the the toolkit and the language of the medium of film over the books. And lastly, when uh, Aragorn leads the hobbits into the wild, I just love that there's a giant landscape shot when he tells the hobbits they're doing that. And you can see Aragorn and the hobbits like very tiny in the small right corner of the shot. And we get kind of like a wider landscape shot of mountains and forests. And it, you know, it doesn't really have any great 
analytical point I'm going to add here, but it just, it really establishes kind of how big the world is, how small the hobbits might feel at this point in time as they're starting to see um, the larger world for the first time. Um, so I just really wanted to call that out. I'm also just a sucker for all the landscape shots that, um, they have in these movies. Oh, word. Um, there's this great, so there's this, uh, comedian, Dan Cardi, I think his name is, um, he's Australian, um, and does like lots of these cutesy little viral videos. Um, but he does this like really good and funny one, um, about Tolkien pitching Fellowship of the Ring. Um, and you know, it shows Tolkien like setting up like, yeah. And it's about like the heir, um, to this, this great dynasty. And it's about like an evil ring and like a dark Lord. Um, and the, the, the book editors are getting really excited and they're like, wow, this sounds brilliant. This sounds brilliant. What happens next? What happens next? And Tolkien's like, and then they walk (laughs) and it's five minutes of him being like, and they walked some more. Um, and I think this is kind of the first time in the, the films you get the sense of, holy shit, this is truly like a, this is like a walking movie. This is a hiking this is a film about hiking in new zealand there are there are other things that like come into play in this film but fundamentally this is like a a travel propaganda tourism propaganda for new zealand and by god does it work well yes it does it it honestly puts new zealand on my map to travel to uh just because of these films um getting over to the score here there's no real major leitmotif analysis we want to do here um a couple things i do want to call out is uh, during the scene in the dining hall at the prancing pony uh there's just kind of an ominous theme that kind of overlays it all and it's not really um you know worth calling out other than the fact that it's juxtaposed against essentially a bunch of men you know drinking partying having a good time um but the way the music plays it definitely creates um you know the sense of danger or a sense of fear that wouldn't be there if it, we just had, you know, silence and just saw all these men uh, chugging their pints and all that stuff. Um, we also get um, the Nazgul theme once again, uh, especially when they ratchet up their attacks and storm the end of the Prancing Pony. Um, I just love always calling out how it's the combination of the nine notes that makes up the ring theme that plays for the Nazgul. Um, that's always a nice touch. And then lastly, when Aragorn is leading the hobbits into the wild in that landscape shot we just talked about, we get a tease of the Fellowship theme, which we don't really get to hear in full until um, the Fellowship actually sets out um, from Rivendell, first when they're formed and then when they set out. Um, It's been teased a couple times so far. When Gandalf arrives at Isengard, we get a few bars of it, but we don't get it in full. Um, But And they kind of hold off until the Fellowship is formed which I just want to call out is a slight uh, difference from the extended edition, um, because in the extended edition, when you get the Fellowship of the Ring title card early on in Bilbo's uh, At Bag End, um, we do get the Fellowship of the Ring theme there. Um, but because of the you know theatrical ed- edition cuts, uh, we get it set over concerning Hobbits, like we discussed in our second episode. Yeah, and I think this is like a good example of why there are like certain benefits to going with the theatrical cut versus the extended cut. And I think like this kind of like, uh, like my brain can only say edging right now, but that like this like failure to like give up the fellowship theme just yet, um, is, is really helpful for like establishing the fellowship as something momentous. Whereas like in the extended edition, you hear it so early and you're kind of like, uh, yeah, whatever. Like, I, I, like I've heard this before. I've seen this before. Blah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about the rule of three uh, when we 
revisit Isengard and talking about how Isengard gets changed uh, physically. There's kind of a rule of three here, um, again, in that um, they kind of tease it, A, when Gandalf rides to Isengard, um, and then here's the second instance where uh, Aragorn leads the hobbits into the wild, and then we'll get it uh, full on, you know, the third time around when we get to the Council of Elrond. All right, so now it's time for our token token book section, which I am once again going to punish the audience by doing my best to read a poem. Um, this is the All That Glitters Is Not Gold poem by Bobo Baggins, which he wrote about Aragorn. Um, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to shut the F up and let Emily talk about it. So um, the poem goes, All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadow shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. That's it. Oh, it's just brilliant. I love it. Every time I hear it, like every time I hear a different person read it, I'm like, oh yeah, like I get something new out of it every time because I just, I, ugh, it's lovely. Um, I, I think one of the things that I like, um, and I've been working, well, I've, I'm almost finished with the 1981 BBC radio play adaptation of Lord of the Rings, um, and they play it in there kind of strangely. Like, I get why they did it the way they did it, but it's a bit weird um, how they do it, um, because they kind of kick it off um, first time you meet Strider with no real context for it, and it's a bit weird. Um, but I like that this little poem... Um, encapsulates almost every single major character we're going to come across um, throughout the next uh, two and a half films. Um, and all of these kind of plot lines are um, converge at various points into the text of this poem. And, and um, it really does set up the the over, overarching themes of The Lord of the Rings in quite a nice way, in a way that I think almost nothing but the bright sword speech um, and i uh i'm laughing at myself <laughs> for my inability to not fucking mention the speech um but it you know this is the thing that really gets the whole point of these books down pat um, and i think also introduces um the the importance of um art um and and poetry and and lay art um and um or folk art is i guess the the more accurate way of saying that um what role that has in these books um it does not show up in the films as far as I'm aware. Um, now that I've said that, I don't know why it's really popular on Pinterest with like women who are into like multi-level marketing schemes. And it drives me the fucking wall because it is literally about a king It's not about like you selling like Avon or whatever. Anyways, um, it's, it's just absolutely beautiful. Um, and uh, if you are someone who is interested in reading the books, um, I highly recommend that you do, obviously, because I have no self-control. Uh, but one of the things that I would encourage you to do as you go through these books is to look up um, or pay attention to um, the words wandering, withered, and renewed. Um, and every single time those words are um picked up in the uh, books is always kind of a sign of like a significant character or a significant plot element. Um, and of course that is like 
um, established here. Um, Bilbo reads this at the Council of Elrond in, in the books, um, but is uh, just a beautiful, just a beautiful, beautiful little poem and um, incredibly efficient with its uh, word usage. Yeah, um, your little jab at the Pinterest moms just reminds me of that uh, line from Bo Burnham's Inside, where he talks about uh, white women posting Lord of the Rings quotes on their Instagram and attributing it to Martin Luther King, um, <laughs> which I thought was uh, pretty accurate. Uh, but one thing I wanted to mention here with this is that there's a phrase that's used in the books, or I'm going to paraphrase it here, and it's mentioned extended editions, about how Aragon seems foul but is actually fair, um, whereas enemies, you know, the enemy would probably seem fair but actually be foul. Um, and I just like really like that distillation of that all that is gold does not glitter kind of idea. And um, I, you know, I have to be me and I have to relay it back to A Song of Ice and Fire in that a lot of the characters who smell, you know, fair, like Varys or, uh, some, you know, characters like that are often the foulest or often the most, you know, scheming or machinizing uh, kind of people. So, you know, what, you know, things not being what they seem are very, you know, common to fantasy, honestly, to all of storytelling. But, you know, with fantasy, you have, you know, Beauty and the Beast and the old crone revealing herself to be a beautiful maiden. Um, you know, here we have like the exiled dirty ranger is actually the king. Um, it's a very common trope. And this is the way that the Lord of the Rings plays with it or plays in that space. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting because this is, it comes up again, um, in, uh, the, the two towers when, um, Sam and Frodo come across the Rangers of the South, the Rangers of Athelion, um, because Sam is like very, very skeptical, rightfully. Um, they're quite close to Mordor. He does not really like the people that he is surrounded by. He and Frodo are surrounded by who have effectively taken them captive, although not quite as harshly as the film show. Um, and he says straight up, you know, um, a fair face may hide like foul intentions. Um, and um, I think it's actually quite funny that this is one of the few times in the books, I think, where uh, the fair faces um, do not hide foul intentions, um, and I think um, we'll, we'll talk about this more later. But there are like quite a few moments where like Tolkien, I think, slips up in his um, in the themes that he sets up because he's so desperate to like have his little self insert characters throughout the the books that he's like, and these people are me, and they are also pretty and very smart and very talented and very brave, um, and it's it's quite charming. But you know, if he were uh, a woman, he would get roasted to shit for it. So I bring it up here um, somewhat bitingly. And then uh, the last thing we'll kind of talk about here for this discussion is we'll talk about the Rangers of the North. Um, we're going to save a broader discussion about the Northern Kingdom uh, for next episode when we get to Weathertop. Uh, the Northern Kingdom is almost not discussed at all, really, in these initial three Lord of the Rings films. Uh, so we're going to, you know, kind of give ourselves some space to really lay it out. And by we, I mean Emily, who is the all-star and scholar here. But we do want to talk about the Rangers a little bit uh, just to kind of set them up and so we don't have to, you know, do it all next time as well. So um, the Rangers are the Dunedain of Arnor, and they're one of the last two remnants of the men of Numenor. Um, the other is the men of Gondor. Um, again, just maybe for the simplest way to think about it is Arnor is the kingdom in the north and Gondor the kingdom in the south. Uh, the Dunedain are the descendants of Isildur. And they kind of became wanderers in the north um, following uh, the fall of the northern kingdom. Um, they're partially there because um, it's far away from Sauron, but also close to where um, that 
to Angmar, where the realm of the Witch King was, uh, who we'll talk about again in a much later episode. Uh, we did mention how they defend the lands of Bree and the Shire, although they are not really well-known or well-liked among the Bree folk, which kind of comes across in these scenes where, um, you know, Barlimon says, no one knows what Strider's real name is. We only know what we call him. And again, that's just mostly a joke on how tall he is um, and how big his strides are. Yeah, um, and this is one of the... Um, the, the rangers are interesting. Um, I say interesting. The rangers are kind of wild um, because um, they are... So, so the Dunedain means that, like, essentially, like, they, they are of the Edain, and the Edain are the, like... I don't know, I don't know, like, what a nicer way to say this is, but, like, they're, like, the turbocharged men of Numenor who were, like, leveled up by the Valar who are basically, like, gods but not gods in middle earth because they helped in um the first war against uh melkor slash morgoth who is sauron's boss who gets his shit kicked in repeatedly um and um they it's just like oh it's so revealing about what tolkien's like um in uh reward for having helped to uh trammel uh morgoth they um get certain i think like i think literally in the summer and it's like certain enhancements of body and mind but basically like they become super tall they some of them can like read minds um some of them are like capable of speaking any language that they come across which they kind of hint at in the extended edition of two towers that like aragorn is capable of i don't know that that's necessarily a thing in the books but they but they are basically like the superhero race of men um not all men are dunedain um not all men are like these like seven foot tall superheroes um the vast 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 majority of men in middle earth are not um the we'll get into this more later but like uh the northern kingdom before it fell was predominantly dunedain whereas like the southern kingdom gondor like survives because they're actually willing to hang out with the middlemen who are not the superheroes um but it is quite fun slash funny that like aragorn's pals are like uh, I hate myself for saying this, but they're like the like Avengers, really, because um, they are all meant to be like superhero types. Um, and we don't get them at all in uh, the films. We don't get the Grey Company, which is a troop of Aragorn's ranger pals who come to help uh, Aragorn uh, take the paths of the dead in the book, um, led also by Eladan and Elro here, who are Arwen's twin brothers, who are uh, some real firecracker characters and quite fun. Um and uh yeah it's just very like avengers assemble like tolkien's doing a lot of this like slightly uber mention shit that is a bit worrying but uh we let it happen because i guess he was technically on the right side of the wars yeah i'm glad you said avengers i was actually just thinking like as guardian because i'm just a level higher on the marvel nerd scale but yeah they are just like seemingly not of a different race but of a different quality which i again i don't like to say because it you can create some kind of bad racism parallels or fascist parallels out of that, which I don't think is the intent either in any of the forms of the story. But um, that is something worth talking about. Um, and I think from the adaptation standpoint, um, I wrote down that it kind of makes sense to me to center all this on Aragorn for economy. But now I'm thinking, you know, there are some drawbacks to it because of what we discussed earlier about the great man theory and rugged individualism by condensing it all and putting it all on Aragorn's shoulders. It definitely does feed into those themes that we're maybe less than thrilled with. Um, even though as just a purely adaptation standpoint, it does make sense to kind of make 
Aragorn kind of the beacon and stand in for the kingdoms of men overall. Um, again, just for economical storytelling, if nothing else. Yeah, I, I kind of go back and forth on this, but one of the I think this is this is for me like one of the big moments at which I think like three movies is not enough. Um, I think now that we live in the age of like uh, what is it prestige TV, like Lord of the Rings probably should have been adopted as like a limited series um, of like probably between six and twelve episodes. Um, but given the like constraint of three films. Um, yeah, this is like necessarily the way that I think, well, not necessarily. They chose to do it this way. I think it's effective that they did it this way, but like I think it is certainly possible to have tried it another way, um, but it's not the one that we get. Um, and I think also this is in some ways, like as I kind of mentioned earlier, like revealing of like the mindset going into these films creatively of like uh, individualism as kind of a key um, emotional touchstone um, and not necessarily like... Um, uh, revering the like necessity of like human connection and like community and solidarity, um, in the way that like Tolkien, even you know, right wing though he may have been, certainly did. Yeah, and it is one of those things when we talk about these films as a product of their times. If they did, you know, start writing or creating or specking out this, uh, you know, ten years later, um, which you know is when Game of Thrones come out, but it's very likely that um, the adaptation of the Lord of the Rings would actually be some kind of television uh, show or serialized drama. Um, back in 2001, um, the whole idea of prestige TV wasn't really there. Um, Sopranos was going at this point, and uh, the show 24 had literally just started about a month before Fellowship launched. But the idea that TV was second tier to cinema was definitely a strongly held belief that really wouldn't be kind of torn away until about eight to 10 years later, um, following the explosion of other HBO dramas like Deadwood, um, as well as AMC and FX also getting into the game with shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and all that stuff. But um, if those films never happened, I bet you um, everyone would be chomping at the bit to create their, um, you know, 60 hour, 10 episode seasons of the Lord of the Rings adaptation, um, however have you. So, um, and there's definitely pluses or minuses to um, TV and cinema, but where we were, especially in 1997, 98, when um, they were creating this, no TV show would have anywhere near the budget to get these actors, depict these settings and do the special effects required for the telling of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I do actually feel like I should count like myself lucky, I guess, or count us all lucky that like this didn't exist in the age of prestige TV because I feel like that could have really only gone quite badly. Yeah, I think it would be uh I don't know, a little too beholden to the zeitgeist at the time, the cultural and critical zeitgeist at the time. One thing we see a lot now is that, you know, a show may have, you know, a rough season and then the writers might see the criticism that occurs and kind of adjusts it for, you know, subsequent seasons or future storylines, whatever the problems there are with the Lord of the Rings films. And, you know, me personally, I don't have that many problems with them. Um, I do like that they were kind of a singular vision and they were kind of created all of the same mindset. And it's all very coherent in a way where I kind of worry what would happen if they had, you know, a really negative reaction to Fellowship of the Ring and then had five years to redo the two towers and something that, you know, fits whatever criticism was thrown at it. I kind of like that they were kind of created as one singular piece of art, um, even though it was broken up into the three films. Yeah, and I actually think this is really interesting given the context of Tolkien's work and Tolkien's writing because um, 
Tolkien writes Legendarium for his effectively his entire adult life, um, and um, there's a series of books, the the Peoples of Mystery, Peoples of Middle Earth books. Sorry, um, the most recent one is the History of Middle Earth, um, and it is uh, edited collections. Um, the first like twelve of them were edited by Christopher Tolkien, Tolkien J.R.R. Tolkien's son, but the most recent one was edited by an outside editor, um, and they are uh, collections of J.R.R. Tolkien's notes on various topics related to the legendarium from various points in his life and you really do start to see um, particularly in the collection that just came out that Tolkien in his later years was responding to critics um, particularly critics who, you know, complained that uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Sil- well, not the Summer Ring because it was published, but the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit um, weren't realistic enough. Um, and he um, errs, not errs, but he makes some choices that I think are like not particularly useful or helpful choices to try and address those criticisms, like trying to add a whole bunch of numbers um, and measurements to things that don't really need numbers and measurements because he wants it to feel more realistic to his critics. And that is really when these sorts of parts of these stories start to kind of weaken a bit. Um, and it is because he's responding in real time to, to the criticisms around him. Um, and, and, you know, I, like you, like you rightly say, I think that, that, uh, factor would have been present in uh, a television series in the way that it would not was not when um, Peter Jackson and co went and exiled themselves to the mountains in New Zealand for three years to go film. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'll just, I just want to end with the fact that whatever I just said about how TV responds to cultural criticism, please do not take that as a negative mark against criticism itself. I think art criticism, which is what we're doing on this podcast, is very important to a healthy cultural discourse and just appreciation of art. Um, the stronger the cultural criticism, the stronger the culture and the art tends to be. So I am not trying to throw critics under the bus or the concept of criticism. In fact, what we're doing here is basically criticism. So um, please do not misinterpret that as saying, fuck those TV critics or anything (laughs) and that closes the book on this episode of my brother my captain my podcast our email is my brother my captain my podcast at gmail.com and my bro my cat my pod on twitter and also freshly now instagram where you can see us posting memes episode updates and whatever else may pop into our minds you can support this podcast by subscribing to my patreon manuclear Manuclear Bomb or patreon.com slash Manuclear Bomb, which will support this and other projects I'm working on, as well as potentially unlock bonus episodes of this podcast. Please go to my website and check the stretch goals. And hey, Manuclear Bomb, that's me. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontieras. And I've been Emily, and you can catch me at JRR Tweeting on Twitter, and I would love to chat with you about anything Tolkien or otherwise. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. stopping there.